How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in your ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually It seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical than being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today our special guest is Felina Hewerts. Felina is an author, speaker, spiritual director, retreat guide, and yoga instructor. She's passionate about spirituality and making the world a better place. With a rare gift for communicating the dynamics of the spiritual journey, which I would add is so needed and so helpful, especially with where we are right now, Felina gracefully guides others toward personal growth, bringing harmony to the active and contemplative dimensions of life. In 2012, Felina co-founded Gravity, a center for contemplative activism to support the development of consciousness by making contemplative practice accessible to individuals, communities, and organizations. She is also the author of her first book, Pilgrimage of a Soul, which I encourage all of you to go get, and her newest book, Mindful Silence, which I've given away as a gift before, which is a vulnerable exploration of the Christian contemplative tradition. And you can find her work, writing, events, everything she's able to do at FelinaHewerts.com. I could say... Oh, yeah. Actually, it's just it's just felina.com. Okay, I didn't yeah. realize that. Sorry about yeah. that. You can find all the work at Felina, P-H-I-L-E-E-N-A.com. But if you can get just the first name on a dot com, that, that's I know, a, pretty great, that, huh? That worked out <laughs> yeah. well. That's my Instagram. It's my Facebook, my Twitter. Gotcha. That's good to yeah. know. So everything, Instagram, yeah. all of the handles is all mm-hmm. just Felina? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I could go on, but Felina, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. Yeah. You know, we always begin with a a bit of a bigger picture zooming out of a person's story because, you know, we think about the idea of the medium is the message, you know, the story is the message, you know, everything we say flows out of the history, the legacy, the trajectory, the people, the, all these things. Um, If you could introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally, like if we zoomed out, what are some of the bigger picture movements in your life, specifically when it comes to your relationship with the church and your life of faith? You know, some people are like, mm-hmm. I got baptized at three, you know, and then I was like this, or some people have a, mm-hmm. like, what are some of those bigger picture markers that help us give the life that all these words are flowing out of today? Mm, I love that question. Uh, you know, I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor and I, I really grew up in the kind of fundamentalist Christian version of church. And it was a wonderful kind of foundation, I think, um, kind of grounded me in uh, a sense of relationship with God, the divine, and a real appreciation for prayer and like this kind of personal relationship with divinity. And then um, I would say 
you know, as I grew into my young adulthood, left home to go to college and all that, that really began a journey of finding myself in the context of spiritual life and Christian faith um, and really shedding the Oh, the um, attachments to, say, my father's perspective on all of that. And I mean, I guess really it is very primarily like my father. Interesting. Um, you know, like he, as a pastor and as a father in a very patriarchal culture and religion, uh, you know, he had a huge influence on me. So, Finding myself um, independent of him has, has really marked my, my faith journey in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to talk about that now because I don't think I've ever really articulated that. Mm. Um, I had a conversation with him this morning that was another kind of important piece to his influence in my life and wow. my own kind of um, independence from, from him. So... Along the way, I went to a, a Christian university, uh, a liberal arts university in Kentucky, and that was a great experience of finding more of myself and becoming. And then I ended up traveling the world and um, being a part of an international uh, humanitarian organization that was really rooted in the evangelical tradition and uh, spent time in over 70 countries wow. in almost almost 20 years, and Whoa. that had a huge influence on my life, my worldview, my sense of self, and this kind of unfolding uh, awareness of reality and divinity and, um, and how, how to live a Christian faith that really, I have to say, you know, has, has taken me to sort of the margins of mm. the Christian religion. And I have a lot of company there. And I have found that, um, that being on the margins of the, the dominant religion that I grew up in um, is no different from how Christ lived, mm. you know, kind of on the margins of his own religion, which I always mm. remind people, you know, wasn't Christian. <laughs> he was Jewish, you know? <laughs> and so I would say, you know, my life has been really one of courageously and sometimes in a, in a very kind of scary way, trying to follow the example of Jesus uh, in all the ways that he lived, you know? Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. Whenever there's the, you know, when people look at a growing and unfolding faith and an evolving one, there's disruptions, there's cracks in the old surface, there's the exposing of, mm -hmm. man, the, the lens I was looking through was an actual lens. The place I was seeing from was a temporary horizon that I was supposed to keep growing. And you have disruptions that help you see it. And always yeah. the, the international 70 countries growing up, you know, especially mm -hmm. with any kind of like an evangelical fervor for evangelism, how it's described and then going mm -hmm. to places and being with real people is all, always has the potential. Some people can, we can always double down and hold on, but has the potential <laughs> yeah. to crack open and yeah. let us keep growing. Yeah, in that. Is right. there any one story you can think of now that you say mm -hmm. that where you're like, man, that was a moment that marked me, that made me see differently they made me mm -hmm. think about my faith or my life or Christ differently because of 
where I was at that, you know, so often it's like age, like at that age that happened and that's what it mm. did for me. Oh, you know, I mean, there are definitely 70 countries, one story. (laughs) I know, I know I'm scanning, I'm scanning and, um, and a few have popped up, but the one that is probably really pivotal and, uh, you may remember from my books, I think I probably wrote about it in both of them was my, uh, my experience in Freetown, Sierra Leone at the peak Mm -hmm. of the war over blood diamonds. Wow. Because up to that point, I, I had been exposed to all kinds of poverty and, you know, human suffering and the injustice of, of all of that. But Freetown um, was unique in that it was exposure to, um, to human brutality wow. and in a way that I'd never seen, you know. Uh, so being in Freetown and that, that, city had just recently been liberated uh, by the UN peacekeeping forces. You know, the, the town was riddled by war. And then of course it was the people and their, you know, the damage done to them that, that was so deeply impactful. So I, you know, I interacted with the the people whose arms and legs had been amputated by soldiers. It was a tactic they used, you know, for fear and intimidation and control. And, uh, had you know really intimate conversations with with those survivors and then um visited a camp for for girls who had been well they're referred to as war brides so they had been wow you know stolen and taken into the um the camps of the soldiers i mean from young very young age and uh and they were forced to be slaves in every manner of the word and mm-hmm. every aspect of domestic life and they were, you know, I never, I had never seen people traumatized like, like they were. I mean, just the catatonic, you know, stares and I mean, just fresh out of the, the war zones and like desperately wanting to tell their story. And, um, and I know I, I'm, I'm sure I experienced secondary trauma. I didn't know about that then. Mm. But I was taken in their stories, and then um, I was imagining these soldiers, you know, just these evil, horrible men, right? And the next day, um, our our um, our host took us to a camp for child soldiers mm. who had also just come out of the war zone, and you know, boys as young as five were soldiers, and these were the boys. And the young men who had done these horrible things to these girls that I'd met the day before. And they didn't look so demonic. You know, Mm. I mean, they just looked like any other boy or young man that I'd met before, you know? I mean, just boys. Mm. And they also were traumatized. And, you know, I heard their stories of what they had suffered, the brutality they experienced. And when I got back from all of that... I was completely wrecked because up to that point in my worldview and spiritual paradigm, even I could always find somebody to sort of blame for the Mm. problems in our Mm. world. Mm. (laughs) You know, somebody was responsible for these Mm. problems and, and these injustices. And certainly many of us are responsible and we have to take responsibility. But what, what Freetown did was, 
exposed me to, yeah, what was, how do I even put it into words? Well, it exposed me to the great need for forgiveness and mercy, Wow. you know? And, uh, and so it was, anyway, it kind of rocked everything. I, I no longer knew what to think of God, like mm. who is God, you know, who is, who is this God who allows these kinds of horrible things? I'd already been wrestling with that, right. Sure. In terms of exposure to poverty, but now like another, you know, it just kind of forced all of those deep, big questions that we all sort of end up asking when we face suffering that we can no longer compartmentalize somehow. Mm. Yeah. And I couldn't make sense of it all, right? It was just like everywhere I looked, somebody had been victimized. And, mm. and so what do you do with that? And, um, and so that was huge and a turning point and put me into a crisis of faith and where I questioned everything and then met Thomas Keating, who mm. saved my life and my faith mm. and changed everything for me. Yeah. It's funny, even just uh, mentioning Keating almost anticipates some of the things I was about to ask as a follow-up to that when I hear that story where there's an individual experience, meaning you as an individual are experiencing this particular form of suffering. I'm with these women who have been traumatized. And then there's like the crazy mind F that comes after of being with the, the perpetrators of it. And you can also see the trauma and the pain within them. Right. So it's like yes. you said that, ability where it's like the one thing I can hold on to is being able to translate some of my internal life into blame towards people is almost dismantled and stripped from me. And that's where I imagine some of the crisis could set in. And you know, when, when people hear like, why would, you know, an individual form of suffering or somebody goes through things like, why would that then have the power to disrupt an entire way of seeing and being in the world when it comes to our faith? I think about so often our individual experiences of suffering, the moments where there requires perhaps an individual form of forgiveness. I'm like the individual experience becomes an open door to larger illusions that we have about life as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't this person. It is the person because they're real, they're concrete. It's flesh and blood. I'm here, but the suffering of this person, the suffering I went through this, I can't categorize this type of situation. That individual thing opens this up to the illusions of, I always thought life worked like this, or this is how it's supposed to work. And this individual thing is shining a light. It's like, that's not how it is. Yeah. I always thought it worked like the individual is like shining a light and exposing Mm -hmm. the illusions we had. And so often the individual becomes this like invitation to actually confront our illusions about life. And that's where the real rub, the real tension, because now we're surrendering and letting go of these larger ways we've seen forever that have protected us or helped us make meaning. Does that resonate with some of those types of experiences? Uh, Yeah, completely, Kevin. I mean, I'm really, I was just like, I got chills listening to you. I mean, you've really captured it. You know, I, I know that comes from experience. Yeah. It's, um, Yeah, it's just incredible to try to, you know, articulate this for people who maybe haven't gotten there yet in terms of their own um, kind of experience of dismantling. But those, those illusions, I think, can only be exposed when we come to that place of, of of real humility and surrender. And I, as I look back on my journey, I can see a turning point from 
where I was holding my faith and what, like, what I knew about faith and reality, I was holding on to that. And then there was a turning point where it was like, my faith holds me now. Absolutely. You know? And even now at this juncture in my life, I'm experiencing even more of mm. a mysterious way of living that is like flowing with the good river of life and mm. mystery. And mm. that is a very subtle, you know, continuation of journey. And it's like, mm. I think I started out, you know, with all the good, you know, fundamentals, the fundamentals of the faith and the, the dogma. You're like, I got my apologetics down. I'm yes. going home. <laughs> yes. I got it figured out, right? <laughs> Let me help change the world. And then it was like, uh, no, actually, you need to be changed. And you didn't know it. And then kind of undergoing a lot of that change, which, which ended up being, you know, something that is really done to me. I don't get to make the change, you know, but in the contemplative way of, of life and faith, it is, it is a, something that's done to me and it's a, it's an undoing. And so it's all about just surrender and realizing mm. how much I don't know, you know? Mm, yeah. It's so good. No, it's okay. You say those types of things because sometimes when I, when I preach, cause our church imagine it's mostly younger people. Like my wife and I are 36 and even from when we were 30, we're usually like the older people there. <laughs> And so if you're ever, you know, there is the, and, and you were alluding to it, there's the encouraging, the fortifying, the strengthening of the self. And then there's the dying to the overcoming and the transcending of the self. Those are very different parts of the journey. So you can say this exactly. first second half of life type of energy. Yeah. Sometimes when I say things, I'm like, at 26, this means nothing to you, but just hold on to this one quote because in 10 years when life punches you in the face and you are, you're feeling a sense of like disequilibrium and just remember this and then this will matter. So I always kind of yes. like, like this doesn't mean anything to you. It does, but you know, in different levels, uh, but I'm like, Hey, but in five years when that thing falls apart, that's when this comes yeah. alive. And anyway, it, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. seeing of the journey ahead. You know, when you get yes. there, you remember little things. That's right. Yeah. And we need guides like that along the way, <laughs> you know, I mean, we truly, yeah. truly do. When you talked about that story, the, the suffering and the undoing that starts to happen from it, the, the struggle, the frustration, the wrestling, and then immediately mentioned Thomas Keating, you know, some people call the father of centering prayer for people who are listening in. I wanna, I'm going to jump ahead in a question because I think it connects those two. You know, avoidance is always going to keep us from truth and wholeness. Always. You know, the, the move, anytime we withdraw our awareness from something it's we already it's a movement like ken wilber said it's the movement from heaven to hell in one step whenever we do that because that thing's always gonna remain in the shadows there you wait five years guess what it's the same thing we have to confront it may have morphed a little because of more trauma it caused but it's the same thing and in the contemplative path that's a part of the mystery of what we're talking about we have to allow reality to hit us in all of its truth with all of its beauty and all of its ugliness and all of its pain and learn. And this is a part of the great mystery of making two, all the two things in our mind into one and learn how to just let it all be. All of mm -hmm. that becomes a part of one thing. Mm -hmm. 
with the Thomas Keating mentioning of what you said, how does then, does silence, meditation, contemplation, or a guide like Thomas Keating help us in what can feel like a seemingly impossible path of mm. somehow letting all of that be and arise in this world? It doesn't mean we have to name each part as good, but we do have to accept it as a part of all of this. How does contemplation mm. in that path help us start doing that in our in, in our interior life? Oh gosh, these are such good questions, Kevin. Um, you know what I'm thinking of as, as you're asking that is like this container that develops through contemplative practice. Uh, in my own story, you know, up until that turning point, that crisis of faith, I was trying to manage life and reality right and belief and faith and when that was when that management experience fell apart and i could no longer contain it on my own then contemplative practice and for me centering prayer just became central to my life um really became a letting go into a container that is big enough to hold mm. me and everything else mm. because I, you know, I couldn't make sense of things. I, mm. I, I had more questions than answers. I was plagued with doubt and what role does doubt have in faith and all of it. I mean, it was just, it was unmanageable. And, and so I would go to my practice, you know, for me, it was just, I took to it like a bee to honey, I think because I was just so desperate. And so, you know, at least twice a day, I would go to my mat, I would sit and I would let go. Mm -hmm. And it was at times really frightening, but there was nothing else I could do. And slowly over time, as I sort of, you know, let go of what I was desperately holding on to, I found myself being held in a reality that is big enough to hold all of this, all the paradoxes, all the contradictions, all the suffering and all the joy, you know, uh -huh. and the, and the gift of life. And honestly, it's not until really at this point in my life that I'm able to, to really start to taste this, the, the goodness, the joy, the, uh -huh. the gift of life, you know? Yeah. In a, in the intro um, to my first book and a part of it, and I was talking to a friend of mine about this, I wrote, and it speaks so much to what you were just saying. And I wrote, the peace the mystic has in public is born out of the tears they've shed in private. Yeah. And that's why I joke around with people. I'm like, you know, now there's some good parts of where even that term mystic is being more, I think, normalized for people. And I, there's always the, obviously the, uh, possibility of things being co-opted and turned into nothing in the end you know after they're marketed to death but nevertheless like it's an important term and we need more and more guides like mystics like contemplatives i think for the future and where people are heading but like as the mystic from a distance can be romanticized i'm like it isn't what you think because the mystic is the one who voluntarily goes to a place to die 
Like you're seeing the po like with Rumi, you're seeing the poetry mm -hmm. on the other side of it. You're yeah. seeing the roar, you know, mm -hmm. his talk on the other side of it, but you haven't seen yes. the hours and hours and hours. Yes. Of like what Mirabai Star says, like the ecstasy and the agony, yes. you know, it's both yes. of those things. And like mm. many things, we want resurrection without the cross. We want death, yes. life without death. We want the ecstasy of the mystic without the agony of what it feels like personally to constantly surrender, let go, be undone, be taken apart. Like that's the part where I'm like, when you do it enough, you trust it. The more you do it, the more you trust it and the more yes. of a flow it becomes. But in the yes. earlier stages for people, that is, I mean, a lot of people won't get through those first big deaths and letting go. Yes. That's right. Um, but it's, you know, I think about old like Merton books or just the way a mystic or contemplative, they have, they all seem to have this mysterious, like somehow in our silence, we help hold the world together. And not in yes. an ego aggrandizing way. There's just something about in one space holding together the tension of death and life and pain and not yes. having to cancel any of it out, letting it all sit and yes. be long yes. enough and, and to still know. And there's always resurrection. Like, I don't know, there's just always something. Mm -hmm. It's like they all have that secret. You know, it's like mystics. Yes. Like, we have a quote on our wall in our living room, and it's a roomy quote. And, and he wrote... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you dance inside my chest where no one sees you, mm. you know? And it's one of those things where it's like, mm. there's that secret thing of everything and one thing, and it kind of holds mm. it all mm. together. Um, mm, it's beautiful, Kevin. I mean, everything you're saying affirms why the Christian faith is relevant and helpful. Mm. Everything that you just spoke to, but it takes a good while for people to get to that realization mm. before it's, it's, it's just a, what is, I mean, it's just like dogma and doctrine rules to live by. Mm. But what you're speaking to is a lived reality, you know, a lived experience of faith. And it's like the Christian story, you know, has the, the language and the understanding to this reality that is very unique in terms of the whole, you know, death and resurrection process. Uh, but many of us, you know, are not trained in mainstream church to, um, to help us through those very lived experiences of crucifixion, death and resurrection. Right. Instead, it's just, it's something to believe that this one man, you know, suffered, died, and was resurrected. Well, how mm. is that helpful? Mm. I, you know, I mean, I would love for the listeners to really contemplate that. You know, like, how is that belief helpful? How does that help you? <laughs> you know, how does it help anyone? Mm. You know, but what you're speaking to is the essence of the faith that I believe is what Jesus was trying to help us realize, you mm. know, in this struggle to be divinely human, mm. there is a way to live that will give you the most meaningful life you can imagine, mm. you know, mm. that's what we get to live and contemplatives and mystics 
come to appreciate that, you know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. You've been, I'm assuming in, you know, 70 countries, different orgs, you know, you've been around all kinds of folks, you know, leaders, pastors, people who write, important people, people who have status, you know, and all like in, and also then just everyday folks where we're living our life, you know, and doing the actual work that we do. And it appears that it's easier to try to spread the gospel to every part of the world than it, it's easier to do that than it is to allow the gospel to be spread to every part of our own soul. And you were, and I, I think you were alluding to a part of why that is where you're saying like people have beliefs, people have like, this is what I believe about this, but there is a great sense of resistance or rub up against or why it's so hard to break through those parts where you allow the work of the spirit into the depths of your own soul. You allow yourself to go on that deeper journey. What, what is, if that's true, if it's easier to spread the gospel to every part of the world than it is to allow it to be spread, what are some of the things required of us to allow the gospel, the spirit, grace, whatever, to come and dismantle us? What is required of us in that that's not required of us to just go out and build you know, what, what are some of those, bar- those barriers we may not be aware of that make that other journey mm. more challenging? Mm. Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind is what I write and speak about often uh, is, you know, these ideas around solitude, silence, and stillness. Mm. Um, that has been crucial to my own unfolding. And in solid, you know, these practices of solitude, silence, stillness, very countercultural, right? Mm-hmm. For for us in Western and modern uh, society. So, in solitude, when we practice regular solitude, withdrawing from, you know, other people and other responsibilities, um, contemplative practices help support this, but it doesn't have to be a con- a traditional practice, you know, it could be hikes in nature. I mean, anything that just kind of helps us get alone mm-hmm. uh, cultivates this capacity to be present to ourselves, to others, to what we understand of God. And then as we make time for silence, we develop this capacity to really listen, to listen deeply to ourselves, to others, to God. Uh, and then stillness practices of stillness, just stopping from all the activity, you know, Um, when we do that, we develop, I I think really, I can say this truthfully, we develop wisdom and discernment Mm. to then know how to engage in our world and what is mine to do and what isn't mine to do, which frees up a lot of energy that is otherwise kind of dispersed and drained by all this, Mm. you know, stuff. And when, when, when we develop that kind of discernment to know what is ours, it's like this, the energy gets really concentrated and it becomes more effective. You know, it may not be as broad or, Mm -hmm. you know, we may, we may feel like we're not having as big of an impact, but we're having a a deeper impact, you Mm -hmm. know, in, in what we're doing. So the solitude, silence and stillness, I think is critical for then, really opening to the gospel spreading within us, Mm. right? 
and how in those spaces of, cause you, you write in solitude when you meant we develop the capacity to be present yeah. in silence. We cultivate the ability to listen and in stillness, we acquire the skill of self-control in mm-hmm. silence, solitude and stillness. If those are the spaces that open us up, that create a more focused presence and energy that allow, right? It's a great allowing. It's an allowing yes. of the spirit. It's an allowing of these things, mm-hmm. right? It's the yeah. issue is just, the issue is never whether or not God's on the way. The issue is we're always in the way, right? Mm-hmm. And you discover that, you know, over time. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a great allowing of doing that. Mm-hmm. What, to even to push that a little bit further, why is that silent solitude stillness and what happens there's so hard for people like even people who are so successful and they're so great and they do all these great things mm-hmm. but why is that part because i'm just i'm interested in that because to me those are some of the great barriers towards the whole life you know what is it within us that resists those spaces mm-hmm. so much mm. i mean no, we just got too much stuff to yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I think we think too much of ourselves. Mm. You know, I think it's an issue of of pride and willfulness, uh, because solitude, silence, stillness, the contemplative way of life. What really the gospel is asking of us is surrender and letting go. And we just don't do that easily. We like to be in control. We like to be in charge, even with our faith. So we get it all nicely packaged in terms of our beliefs about reality and divinity. And we're in control of that. Mm -hmm. But none of that is gospel. The gospel is about learning how to die. Mm -hmm. Learning how to die so that this greater life can be lived in and through us. But we just struggle with that, right? Then Thomas Keating, of course, has some great, um, like some helpful paradigms for this in his programs for happiness Mm. to help us, right, begin to understand unique to us why it's so hard to let go and surrender and trust. Why is that so hard? Well, because we have these programs for happiness mm. and, uh, and you know, those center around affection and esteem and security and survival and power and control. And we're attached mm. to those things for good reason. No judgment. Mm. It's, some mm. of it is really just hardwired in our biology. It's, mm. it's this, it's this wild ride of being human or learning how to be divinely human. So we wrestle with our humanity around those attachments to power and control, affection and esteem, security and survival. Mm. And then we learn that we can let go of those attachments and we're going to be okay. And in fact, we're going to be better than okay Mm. because the life that is intended for us is a life of freedom and a life of flow. Like what you experienced with your books this last year, Mm. that's our birthright, but our attachments, our willfulness, our thinking too much of ourselves gets in the way. Mm, yeah. Oh, it's so good. You know, to the mm. listeners, you know, I made the mistake we were talking, and by we, I mean like I was talking before we started recording. So that means 10 minutes that could have been the podcast was us just talking before <laughs> I did this. Um, there's so many other things I could say. You know, when, 
you know, the, this podcast, The Church Needs Therapy, you know, the title is funny and the title is interesting, but also I think the title speaks to, to hope. You know, you don't go to therapy without hope, you know, that tomorrow doesn't have to be the exact same as today or yesterday mm-hmm. and that there is a possibility for a widening, more whole path. And despite many reasons to not believe, especially the onslaught of things the last 20 months, you know, if you scroll through media and it's very easy to just, I think for people to just give up on the church and walk away in any doom mm. scroll, <laughs> you know, but nevertheless, for, for me personally, and I assume for you, you know, there's still this hope of like, but this path, like we were saying, the lived reality of not just believing that happened in Jesus, but knowing that happens in and through our own lives in the presence of Christ as a whole. Now with, with, you know, your vision, the experience you've had, the work you continue to do, there are so many people who are walking away from congregational life in a church, right? They're walking away from a faith that is too narrow, a God who is too small and a church that just seems too exclusive, right? That, mm-hmm. that's, that seems to be at, at work in different forms and different iterations of that when you speak with people. Mm-hmm. What is, when you see that as a person of faith, as a person who's grounded in the Christian tradition, the contemplative stream of it, how do you read that, like that spiritual landscape of our time today? And, mm. you know, if that's, if people are walking away from that version, how do you read that? And also what do you, what are some hints and guesses as T.S. Eliot says of like possibilities of the faith being born again? You know, what might, a, what might be parts of that more hopeful, wider version specifically mm. here in the U S just cause that's like where we are. Right. Mm. Well, everybody <laughs> needs to learn how to die. That's it. If you get it, that's the thing. There's a yes. lot of other things happening. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking about a few different things. One, have you heard of the church of conscious harmony? Mm-mm. Oh man. It's this beautiful church in Austin, Texas. Founded about 30 years, 30, 40 years ago, um, primarily because of Thomas Keating's influence, also Gurdjieff, and there's no place like it. I've never been anywhere like this, and I had the privilege of, I'd heard about it for years, and then they actually invited me to speak there, and it was just so amazing, Kevin, because the church is founded on spiritual practice. Mm. So while they have the you know, the tenets of the Christian faith, the way they do church is not like any other church I've been to. And so it was really quite overwhelming to speak there because the, the palpable presence of love in that congregation was, um, I mean, it was, it was just so intense. Like I'd never been in an audience like that. So I think about them and like how they have just reimagined church. Like they were doing it 40 years ago. Mm. And I think they have a really great model uh, for a lot of um, folks like yourself who are with Brueggemann's influence, you know, trying to imagine and reimagine what this could be like. And I have a lot of friends that are clergy and they're really struggling with what is the future of the church. So I think about that, that particular church's in, uh, influence and their way of life. Um, 
And then, you know what, I think about, like, perhaps this is the trajectory that we're on, that, that the Christian faith is moving and evolving into a more spiritually practiced faith, um, where, you know, the contemplative aspect of the faith is really coming to bear on mainstream religion. And then I think about, you know, like the Buddhist tradition, and I know it's arguable that Buddhism isn't a religion, but a philosophy. And yet, you know, when you think about the timeline, you know, they're, they're further ahead than Christianity in terms of, you know, the founding and then how they developed their way of, of life and practice. And I, I don't know, it gives me a lot of hope to imagine that the Christian faith could become relevant like that because what's happened over the last 50, 70 years, probably now is, you know, a lot of Christians were in, in the U S were, you know, reaching that point of like their, their, their religion, their church was not helping them. Practically, it was not helping them. They had the belief system, but it wasn't mm-hmm. helping them. And many of them started turning right to Eastern practice. And then it wasn't until Keating and some of the others um, who, you know, they were seeing this in the 60s and 70s, people from the Christian faith leaving their religion and going, uh, adopting, you know, Buddhist meditation practice or other um, Eastern practices. And people like Keating were like, wait a minute, we have, we have mm. a contemplative dimension in our own faith. It's been largely isolated to the monasteries. Let's figure out how to bring this to mm. bear on, you know, our society and our, our Christian um, heritage here. And, and now we're, we're really in the, in the, like, you know, we're benefiting from all that hard work that Keating and others have done before us and now many of us are finding our way into that contemplative space so perhaps church in the future will look more like dharma or something of that nature Mm, you know mm, interesting yeah i think with you know your that vision and that hope of that and you know i had um uh Aaron Nikus on here and he's like, you know, wrote the eternal current and it's like, you know, practices liturgy, you know, that's like his big thing, you know, like with his book that he wrote. And I think many different people while looking from slightly different places, it's all pointing towards something being more experiential, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways, like the grounding of that. And it may, even now, sometimes when I see people, of faith, you know, maybe they were Christian leaders or something. I probably just see them from a distance and I see more and more of an inch. There's an, an increasing interest in a wave of people being really into the research of psychedelics and other things like that, which I have a background in that, you know, that was a part of my journey leading to where I am, you know, when I was young. Mm. Uh, but I'm like, that's for me that those, like I would tell people, that mushrooms were like a missionary for me pointing me towards the fullness of what I didn't know at the time was there yet. But then when I see people who are 35, 40, 45 or whatever, and they've been in church forever, they've led church. And then now there's this, like, now they're moving towards that. I'm like, with no judgment, I'm like, to me, a part of what I see is the desire for deep experience. Yes. You've had the words, you've had the information, you've had, and it's in many ways, it's the edges. This is, goes back to like everything belongs. It's the edges without the essence. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's the mechanics of things without the substance. It's the directions mm-hmm. without the experiencing of the water. And like, that mm-hmm. just fascinates me because I'm like, there's this deep desire for the knowing and the being known by not to hold on to That's everything, right. but to be held and all of that. And people are like, the belief systems in the end, in those deeper places, they don't, that's why in the end you're like, what are those, like beliefs are important, but you get to a point you're like, that won't get you there. Right. That's why a church like that, you're like, do they believe it? You're like, sure, they believe it, yeah. but this is a different, it's the waking up yeah. experiential part of it is a different mode. And I think there's all these different ways of like, how do you do that? And cultivating 10, 15, 20 years of silence is much more challenging than, you know, that's one of the draws to me for psychedelics. It's like an immediate guaranteed thing. Right. No judgment. I right. do have a lot of complex thoughts on all of that, but I do think that, that desire and the movement towards the experiential and the, cause it's the actual, it's the actual substance of the thing, you know, that's right. It's that's the right. actual depth and truth of what all this is. So yes, please go pick up both of Felina's books, The Pilgrimage of a Soul and her newest book, Mindful Silence. If you enjoyed any parts of this interview, if you're interested in contemplation, that stream within Christianity, this deeper journey as well, and the wisdom and the insight and the vision of life and faith that flows out of that, go get both of those books. You will love them. Pay attention, follow along with Felina's journey at felina.com. Instagram, every other social media handle is just Felina, P-H-I-L-E-E-N-A. So follow along with her journey. And I'm so glad that you tuned in.